Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now taking up a new book, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I'm going to do verses 1 through 14 after a brief introduction. The author of our book, of course, is the Apostle Paul. He was probably writing it to other churches besides the Ephesian church. There were a lot of churches in the area. Remember, he stayed there for three or so years on his third journey. Lots of work, lots of churches around there. It's probably a circular letter. It doesn't have the usual personal greetings. In fact, some manuscripts leave out to the to the Ephesians. It just leaves out, it says, to the Christians. So it's uh, probably a circular letter. It was probably written about 60 A.D. This was after Paul's third journey. He went to Rome. Well, under arrest, he went to Rome after he was put in jail for two years at Caesarea, if you recall. And so he was, that was roughly at the end of the 50s when all that happened. So this was probably written about 60 A.D. As he got back to Rome, he wrote it from prison to the Ephesian church, perhaps the same time as he wrote the Colossian letters. He wrote to the city of Ephesus. He wrote to the Christians in Ephesus and surrounding areas. Let's talk a little bit about the city of Ephesus. It was located on the, on the most direct sea and land route to the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, so it was a big deal. It was a good way, if you were in Rome, to get to Persia, India, China. As a trading emporium, Ephesus had few equals anywhere in the world. Its situation in Asia Minor was this. It's the most popular city in Asia Minor. It was the most famous city in Asia Minor. In fact, it's still there. You can go see it. It's a great ruin. If you want to feel like you walked into a time machine, go to Ephesus. It was it was not only the most famous city and most popular city in Asia Minor. It was one of the foremost cities in the whole Roman Empire. It ranked right up there with Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria, and Corinth. It was situated on an inland harbor on the western coast of Asia Minor. The harbor is now silted up. And in fact, one reason you can still see Ephesus today is because the, when, when the harbor silted up, the city fathers would build the, town, the new town of Ephesus a, a little further up the river, the Caesar River, and they would keep going up the river. And when they finally gave up, the city wasn't built one on top of each other and hidden, except to archaeology archaeological digs in later years it was just it's just sitting there so you can go see it today Caesar river ran of course into the gnc and ephesus was about three miles from the gnc its prominent architectural feature was the world famous temple of artemis or of course the romans called her diana the greeks called her artemis the virgin goddess the hunter goddess that temple is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world it's got a great history you remember that temple is is was there it was in Ephesus and remember Paul got in trouble because it took business away from Demetrius the silversmith who started up trouble and pretty soon there was a crowd a riot a rioting crowd saying great is Diana of the Ephesians well that's where her temple was right there in Ephesus I asked the tour guide when I was in Ephesus where's that temple I thought they'd take us to see it well it turned out that it was boxed up in 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 uh <laughs> I say boxed up. It was packed up. The ruins were because a 19th century businessman had decided to buy it, and they prepared it for journey to take it by rail somewhere to take it off to Europe. And the businessman backed out on his purchase, and so the thing just sat there all crated up. She says, it's not worth going to look at. Well, I would have liked to look at it, but I was on a bus, and I couldn't go. So I didn't get to see it. So I said, well, how how have the great fallen? It was a big deal back then. Now let's talk about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He had converted a large number of people there because he stayed there for about three years on his third journey. Let's read that in Acts 19.26. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, this is Demetrius the silversmith speaking, Paul's enemy, 
You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. You notice how Demetrius said that in almost all of Asia, not only in Ephesus, Paul had turned away a considerable number of people. So Paul was having great success. Ephesus was a center of evangelism for about three years, and of course that three years is a rough estimate. My NIV study Bible has the discussion on exactly how long it was. It doesn't really matter. Paul operated out of a lecture house, Tyrannus, a lecture hall owned by Tyrannus. He stayed there. That location is now on loan and lost. The church was vibrant for a long time, but later on, as we get on toward into the 60s, it got cold, backslid. I'm assuming a pre-70 AD date for the book of Revelation. I realize that's controversial. It used to be the majority view in the 19th century, by the way, but now it's not. However, read Ken Gentry's Before Jerusalem Fell, and you'll be convinced that Revelation was written before AD 70. So if that's true, here's what we see about Ephesus in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that's Jesus. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that's Jesus, says this. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Well, so they, and they maintain doctrinal orthodoxy. Here's the bad news. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear. All right, so the Ephesians church later on in the 60s before 8070 became cold, dead orthodox, cold and orthodox. They hated the Nicolaitans, I suspect, because they were heretics, because they were good at maintaining doctrinal orthodoxy, but not as far as maintaining their passion for the Lord. And, of course, Ephesus was the place that Paul almost got mobbed to death. I mentioned this earlier in that he wasn't in the amphitheater where they were crying, great is dying of the Ephesians, because his friends didn't let him go in there because they were scared he would have gotten killed. He probably would have. I've seen this amphitheater. It's huge. You can look in it now. They used to have rock concerts in it, but then Elton John, according to the tour guide, Elton John had a rock concert in there, and the music coming from the amplifiers vibrated so much that it messed up the foundations, and so now they're scared to let anybody have a rock concert anymore. I thought, isn't that great? Having a rock concert in an archaeological something as valuable as that. But anyway... What's the message of the book of Ephesians? Well, it did not address any particular error or heresy. Its main theme is God's purpose. God's purpose for Christ, God's purpose for Christians, God's purpose for the church. So that's a good way to, a good idea to hold that in our heads as we go through here. Another interesting thing about Ephesus is that things at the end of our race are emphasized, the end of the Christian life are emphasized. Now, I wonder if that's because Paul was in prison. He talked about finishing the race when he wrote the Philippians, also a prison epistles. Maybe prison took his thoughts away from things of the world. He's thinking about, I wonder what it's going to be like in heaven. So we can keep that in mind, too, as we go through. So let's start. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
He starts out with his typical salutation, grace to you and peace. Grace is used 12 times in Ephesians, and peace is used seven times in Ephesians, so that's going to be a big theme in the book, grace and peace, which, of course, grace is unmerited favor. God gives us something we don't deserve, and peace means peace with God. We're not his enemy anymore, and we're at peace with ourselves, and sin is not waging war in our souls. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed has two meanings. When it's used of humans, it means blissfully happy or contented. So when God, God blesses us, he makes us blissfully happy. But when the word is used of God, as it is here in Paul's salutation, it means worthy of adoration, reverence, or worship. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 1, 3-14, our next, starting with our next verse, that passage is often called a doxology. The passage is an expression of worship to honor God. God is worshiped as the Trinity. In verse 3, we'll see God being praised as Father. In verses 4 through 13a, we'll see God being praised as Son, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit will be praised in verses 13b through 14. A doxology, of course, is an inscription of praise to God. It's a, it's a section of Scripture that praises God. Uh, ironically, the passage is one long sentence in the original Greek. It doesn't stop. It just keeps going. Now Paul mentions in verse 3 that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now that phrase heavenly places occurs five times in Ephesians, but in no other scripture does it occur. Now here's a question I ask. Do we have to die to get the blessings which are in the heavenly places or do we get some of them now? Do we have blessings now in this veil of tears? The answer, in my humble opinion, is this. When Paul says he has, has blessed us, it sounds like we have it now. We, I mean, you could say that we, ha, we he's blessed us now, but we're not going to actually walk into those blessings until we die. But I, I say, why make the distinction? Why not say we're blessed now and we're also blessed upon our arrival in heaven? And I think that's the way most people actually take it. So that means that because we are in heavenly places in Christ, seated at the right hand of God, the Father of of seated, seated at the right hand of, of Christ, we have every spiritual blessing that He could possibly give us. We have everything we need to conquer sin, not only in justification but also in sanctification and ultimately in glorification. Now Paul says that these blessings in the heavenly place places, those blessings are in Christ. Now whenever you see the phrase in Christ. I prefer to translate the phrase as in union with Christ because that's exactly what it means. So we, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in union with Christ. As we are in union with Christ, we have everything that Christ has because we're in union with him. That phrase in Christ, or a similar phrase to in Christ, occurs 12 times in verses 3 through 12. 12 times we're going to talk about union with Christ. Here's an analogy I like to use to explain what that means in Christ. If we're in water, we are completely surrounded by it. There's nowhere we can go and not be covered with water. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. This phrase, in Christ, quote, implies the paramount importance of the truth that it is in him and by virtue of union to him, there's that phrase, union to him, the second Adam, the restorer, ordained for us from everlasting, the head of, the, of redeemed humanity, believers have all their blessings. It's in union with him that believers have all their blessings. So he says it in a more fancy way, fancier way than I said it. In union with Christ, we're blessed with everything we need spiritually. Now we go to Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself 
according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, there's a lot of theological words in this short passage here, 4, 5, and 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. We'll take them one at a time. First of all, just as he chose us in him, that's the same as elected. So whenever you see the word chose, that's just one way of translating the same Greek word that's translated as elected. Election is a prominent theme in Paul's letters. It's everywhere. And of course, Arminians, i.e. Baptist, Methodist, Nazarene, Charismatic, Pentecostal, just about everybody's Armenian. It's such a crying shame. They won't even mention this word election. You go into these churches and and... You wait till you hear the word election. You're going to be waiting till your hair is gray because people don't like to talk about it. But Paul did, which makes me suspicious of those churches. If you can't say what Paul did, there's something wrong, something wrong somewhere. Let's look. Give me. Let me give you some examples. Romans 8:33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, which means God's chosen people? Romans 9:11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, for the purpose of God according to election might stand. That's Jacob and Esau. For the purpose of God according to election, choosing, election might stand. Romans 11:5. Even so then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Romans 11:7. What then Israel hath not obtained that which he seeks for, but the election hath attained it. And the rest were blinded. Romans 11:28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, the Jews. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. I like that phrase, the election. Word won't even most churches won't even use it. Paul calls it the election. Romans 16:13. Salute Rufus, chosen or elect in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Rufus is elected in the Lord. Colossians 3:12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, or as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. How many times you had a preacher say, do you know your election of God? Do you know what your election of God is? No, nobody wants to talk about it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you or elected you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. From the beginning, from the beginning of the world, from the beginning of creation, God has chosen you. What could be clearer? Well, of course, people will try to avoid the plain import of these words by various artifices, which I'll, and I'll mention one of them as we go through here. But I'm just trying to give you the full impact of election. It's everywhere in Paul's thought. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. Now, Paul is talking about the chosen people here in verse 4, to, where he says that he chose us in him, he elected us in him. It's interesting. The Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. But the church is God's chosen people in the New Testament. Now, I mentioned how sometimes Armenians like to get around the plain import of these scriptures. One thing they might like to say is that God did not elect individual people. He elected the whole church. He says, I, I choose that there will be a church. But whether you're in that church or not, whether an individual is in that church or not, is a matter of his free choice. And I'm not going to choose that because that would de destroy the, the Christian's free will. So that way, individuals are allowed to be chosen by human choice, not by God's election. I've got a good quote from Greg Boyd, the open theist who's just an Armenian on steroids. 
He says that explicitly in the website I've got here. He just says it. God chooses the whole church. as He chooses a church to be there, but he doesn't choose who's going to be in the church. Now, here's a logical problem with that. Now, this is my thinking. Now, I didn't read this anywhere, so you can take it with a grain of salt. If salvation is a matter of individual choice and people have free will to choose to be damned, to choose to be saved, theoretically it would be possible that all human beings could choose to be damned. If that were the case, where would the church be? It wouldn't exist. Therefore, human free will could obviate, could blunt, could destroy God's election of a church, of a corporate people. So when Paul says in verse verse 5, he predestined us to adopt as his sons, he predestined a church to be. But if each individual chose not to be in that church, then that, that which God predestined would not exist. That's a logical contradiction, folks. Doesn't make any sense. No, he's talking about individuals are elect. Now, does that mean the church should be proud? Of course not. They should not be proud of their status. They should be grateful and thankful that God reached down and showed mercy to them, that which was not deserved. You can't be proud of something you don't deserve. The Jews were elected as the Old Testament people of God, too, by the way. And, and God, there's lots of places I don't have any in front of me, but, you know, they were constantly rebuked for being proud, like those proud Pharisees that held their hands up and thank God I'm not like this tax collector over here. <laughs> no, no, nobody should be proud because they're in the elect. We should be grateful that we're in the elect. All right, in verse 4, God chose us from the foundation of the world, that means before the world was here, before time, before space, that we should be holy. So God chose us for a purpose. What was his purpose? That we should be holy. What does holy mean? Here's a quote from dictionary.com. Quote, endowed or invested with extreme purity or sublimity, devout, godly, virtuous. That's a nice secular definition. My definition is this, typical theological definition is this, separated from the world and dedicated or consecrated to God. Separated from the world, consecrated to God, that's what holy is. Now notice that holiness is the result, not the basis of God's election, as the NIV Study Bible says. In other words, holy, um, God's election is the root and the holiness is the fruit of our election. We were not chosen because we were holy, but in order that we might be holy. We were not chosen because we were holy, but in order that we might be holy, as John Gill says. The verse does not say we were holy so that we were cho might be chosen. No, it's exactly the opposite. We were chosen for the purpose that we might be holy. And remember, one of the themes of the book of Ephesians is purpose. What is God's purpose? He chose us not just so we could go to heaven, but so that we could be holy. We could be to the praise of the glory of his grace so that people could see what it's like. The creation was meant to be when God made us. Verse 4, Paul says, in love. That's the last two verses of verse 4. I love the way the versifiers of the Bible divide their verses. That really makes a lot of sense to put those two words separate from verse 5. But anyway, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. Now one of the main reasons God predestined us is because he loved us. It takes a lot of love to give Christians what they get as a member of the elect. They get eternal life. They get constant care and attention. They get forgiveness for all of for all we for all of their horrible sin. You know, oftentimes predestination is associated with God's wrath. But now here in the most famous use of the word, it's predest is predestination of believers to bliss because in love He predestined us to holiness. It love predestined is a doctrine of love, not of hatred, not of wrath. 
Wrath is already on people of the world. We all deserve hell. Every last dog on one of us. Me, you, and everybody else. The fact that he bothered to choose any of us is an expression of his love. In love, he predestined us. In love, not in wrath. In love, he predestined us. Now, this happened before the foundation of the world. Let's look at some other phrases that reflect that. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Who has saved us and called us for the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity. That means from before the foundation of the world. It wasn't a late decision that God made in order to elect us. He elected us from the foundation of the world. Second Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. Now you could say from the beginning of the world or from the beginning of the church, but... No, you put all these verses together, you get the feeling it's from all eternity, from the beginning of the world. Shows you why for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Predestination is going to show up again in verse 11, so we'll take it up again when we get there. I'll read it right now in advance. Verse 11, Ephesians 1, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So we have been predestined to obtain an inheritance. Romans 8:29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Notice this predestination, not just to get saved, but also to be changed, transfigured, sanctified, glorified, to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, before the ages, before the foundation of the world. All right, here in verse 5, the word predestination is used. We're predestined to what? To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Well, we know what a, a natural adoption is in the, in the legal world, in the human world. We're adopted like that. Now, Jesus is God's son by nature. Christians are God's son by grace because he adopts us because we weren't his natural children. We were his enemies. Our father was the devil, and he says, okay, I'm going to take you out of that family, the family of the devil. I'm going to adopt you into my divine family. Now, in the natural, legally, adopted sons have all the privileges of a natural son. Inheritance, money, name, you name it. There's no difference between a natural son and an adopted son, legally. Likewise, because we are adopted sons, we have the same privileges from our Father that Christ has. Eternal life, instant access to the Father, holiness, it's ours. That's high privilege, high grace here in Ephesians 1. Now, there's three other times in the New Testament that the word adopted, referring to Christians, is used. Romans 8.15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, which we cry out, Abba, Father. Remember, I call this little section of 1-14 through 14 of Ephesians 1, predestined, predestined as sons, sons of God. Romans 8.23, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And there you talk about the fulfillment of our adoption as sons. He uses the word a little bit differently there. It talks about the, the redemption of our body is when we are adopted as sons. And of course, in these other verses we're reading, we, had, we received the spirit of adoption, for which we cry out, Abba, Father, when we become born again. So our spirits, when we receive a new spirit, we're born again. When we receive a new body, 
excuse me, when we receive a new spirit, we are adopted as sons. When we receive a new body, our body is redeemed. We are adopted as sons. Also, Galatians 4, 5, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. All right, so we're sons. That means Jesus is our brother, in a sense. He's the natural son. We're the adopted sons of God the Father. Verse 6, or at the end of verse 5, I should say, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind attention of his will. He was kindly intentioned toward the elect, and it was his will, his desire to predestinate us, to predestine us. He wants us. He wanted us. He desired us. We were predestined not because of anything good we did, but merely because he wanted us. That's why. That's why he predestined us, according to his will. Will means his desire, his want, his want to. To the pray, and we were predestined as to the adoption as sons, according to God's will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So, as the NIV Study Bible puts it, election is for God's glory, not ours. He wants a people to show the new creation. He wants to show the world, the heavenly beings, the angels, everybody. This is the way I created the human race. This is the way it was supposed to be. And the way these morons down here on the planet Earth has, have screwed it up is not anything that reflects my glory at all. And it's not who I am. It's not the way I made mankind to be. I want the elect to glorify me, to show me what a wonderful God I am, what a wonderful creator I am. So he chooses an elect in order to do that. And it's to the praise of his glory. When the created world sees Christians in the church... The world will praise God for what he has made. Now, that's something for one to ponder. If you ever get down on yourself, you're part of an enterprise that's designed to give glory to God, designed by God to give glory to himself. Note how Arminians tend to think predestination is embarrassing to God's honor. Oh, it's terrible. You know, we've got to save God. He's a loving God. If we say he predestined some, that means he leaves some others behind. And that means he doesn't save everybody. And some people go to hell, and that makes God a bad God. And, and they're embarrassed about the word predestination. I'm not embarrassed about it. The purpose of predestination was because of God's love, his kindly intention to save a people that will give him praise and glory. The fact that God didn't let us all rot in hell for our crimes and sins should make us praise God, as I'm sure it does, because that's what we deserve. Verse 6, Paul says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, this predestination occurs, which he freely bestowed on us, the grace which is involved in predestination and election. The grace he freely bestowed us and the beloved freely means you don't have to pay for it. It's free. It's mercy. It's grace. It's not works. He freely bestowed on us. Now, the us there could refer to the church as a group, which as Arminians say, so he freely bestowed that grace on the church as a, as, a, as a corporate body. But the individual Christian has to choose to get himself in that body. Or the individual Christian has to use his free will to put himself into a collective entity that has been chosen. God chose the church as a group, but then the individuals choose to get in that corporate entity. That's the Arminian view, which I, in my humble opinion, is, thinks is really sad. The, but the other view is the Calvinist view, the Augustinian view, which says God, that the us there in verse 6, where Paul says to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, means on us individually, on every one of us, every one of us in the elect. And I think that's the proper answer. Now, there's an off the wall, another view here that when Paul says God 
bestowed that grace on us, he's referring to the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. Well, I don't know why. In other words, he, he showed that grace on us Christians, but he didn't show grace on the Jews who don't believe. I don't think that's what it is. I mean, after all, Paul's a Jew. Why would he be identifying himself with the Gentiles? I don't know where Clark got that idea. So we're going to assume that this free grace was bestowed upon all individual members of the church in the beloved, that's in Christ. Paul calls him the beloved. We go to Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 8. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Paul in verse 7 says we have redemption. Redemption is a legal term. Slaves are bought out of slavery by someone paying a ransom price to the owner. Let's say that I have a son. I don't have any money. I've got to sell him into slavery. I make some money later. Then I go to the slave owner and I say I want to redeem my son back. Here is the purchase price back that you paid me for my son. I'm going to give the money back to you, maybe plus some interest. And ooh, I've ransomed my son out of slavery. That's what... Jesus did, except instead of paying money, he paid for it with his blood. Because only blood can atone for capital crimes. The life is in the blood, and life has to be given for the lives that we have taken, the human race has taken with our sins. And so that's what that means, redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, that means that we don't have to suffer punishment for our sins. Trespasses, of course, is sins. Two aspects are involved in this forgiveness. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, one is we re are released from the penalty of sin. We don't have to die because of what we've done. We're also released from the power of sin. This means we don't have to continually sin and ask forgiveness. We can actually stop doing the sin. We get forgiveness from the penalty of sins we've already done and released from the power of sins to keep us from doing sins in the future. According to the riches of his grace, rich means he ain't poor in his grace. He pours it out lavishly and abundantly. He lavished it on us. Lavish means he just pours it out, pours it out, pours it out. Now, the last phrase in all wisdom and insight really ought to go with the next verse. Again, I don't know why the versifiers stop, break sentences up in the middle of a sentence. I don't know why they do that. So we'll go on in all wisdom and insight. Verses 9 and 10, he made known to the mystery us the mystery of his will. I'll just start out with Ephesians 1, 9. And all wisdom and insight. The incredible wisdom of God is deigned by the world to be foolishness, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? These are big shot intellectual college professor types. Back then it was Greek sophist. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to the, save those who believe. Now let me tell you, that's something, if you're a Christian, you will find that conflict constantly. The big shots in the universities are constantly mocking Christianity, and they're going to, I don't know how to say this politely, but they're going to roast in hell for it. They've made little people stumble. They've blocked up the doors to the kingdom of heaven and there's no excuse for it but god's gonna make that foolish i say they're gonna roast in hell unless they repent of what they've done but god's wisdom and all of god's wisdom and god's insight he has made known to us the mystery of his will let's read ephesians 3:10. so that the manifold wisdom of god might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places rulers and authorities in the heavenly places would be angels angelic beings 
and the wisdom of, of God is not going to be made known through the agency of the church. The church is going to spread the wisdom of God through the world. That's the only way the wisdom of God can get to the world is through the church, because that's where the Holy Spirit lives. And notice when he, when, when Paul says that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses because of the redemption that he gave us through his blood, that's forgiveness past, present, and future sins. It's over. You will not be condemned because of your sins. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, he has made known to us in the mystery of his will. Let me go back and get that last phrase there. In all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Let me just stop there because of that word mystery. The NIV Study Bible defines that as, quote, the purpose of God, unknown to God, except that shouldn't be unknown to God and unknown to us. The purpose of God, unknown to us, except by revelation. Now, that word Mysterion, I think is the Greek word. It was commonly used by mystery religions, and it was meant to refer to secret, esoteric religious knowledge known only to a select few. And if you joined the sect and went through the the mysteries, like the Eleusinian mysteries, or some kind of Gnostic-type ritual ceremonies, then you would get to know that knowledge too, and that would give you salvation. But now Paul changes that meaning radically. Now it doesn't mean esoteric knowledge that can be known only by a few. It refers to knowledge of God that can be known by everybody who accepts his revelation. It can be known by all. Let's show the revelation aspect of mystery now, Ephesians 3, 9. And to bring to light, what is the administration of the mystery? Bring to light. See, it's not hidden anymore. Anybody can see it. The administration of the ministry, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Colossians 1, 26. The mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to a saint. So now you've got something hidden. It's now revealed. Romans 16:25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. So there, Paul, in three different letters, emphasizes the fact that the mystery of salvation has now been revealed. The mystery religions didn't reveal their secrets. To this day, nobody knows what went on with the Eleusinian mysteries, but we all know what the revelation of the mystery of salvation is now because God is revealing it to us. Only the unsaved are uninitiated in wisdom now. The saved are not. Verse 9 says, He made known to us. There's the revelation again of the mystery. He made known to us. It's not a mystery anymore. Now, let's look at this word mystery in other places. Paul uses the mystery to refer to the incarnation. 1 Timothy 3.16a, first part of the Bible. This is the Lexham English Bible translation. And most certainly, great is the mystery of godliness who was revealed in the flesh. So that revelation in the flesh, that the incarnation, was a mystery. Now, most translations translate that as testimony. No, I take that back. Most of them say mystery. I think most of them say mystery. It's this next verse here where mystery is used in reference to the crucifixion that most translations translate mystery as testimony. But I did find one, the English Revised Version, that translates the Greek word as mystery, referring to the crucifixion here. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the mystery of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul there refers the crucifixion as a mystery that has now been revealed as to its purpose and so forth. God, this verse that we're on right now, Ephesians 1, 9, says that, 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 that it was a mystery, that, the, that it was a mystery that God's purpose was to sum up all things in Christ. 
Ephesians 1, 9, our verse, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him. And verse 10 says, which I hadn't read yet, that he planned in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. All right, so that's the mystery of the summing up of all things is referred to as a mystery. How about God's plan to include Gentiles and Jews together in the church? That was said to be a mystery, Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight, insight about the mystery of the Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Of course, Paul was one of those holy apostles and prophets. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body. That was the mystery. It's now revealed, hidden before, but now revealed. The Gentiles are just as much of the body as, as Jews are. Here's another mystery, the glorification of the body. 1 Corinthians 15:51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And so there, there you have it. The resurrection of the body is a hidden secret that has now been revealed through the apostles. Now in verse 10 in Ephesians 1, Paul says this mystery was revealed. With a view to an administration, well, let me read verse 9 again. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. Well, what is the fullness of times? Well, there's two options as to when that is. Administration, well, administration means managing the kingdom, if you will. But when is that? Or managing the world, the created world. When? At the first advent, that's option one, or two. Option two, the second advent. John Gill says it's the first advent when the fullness of times comes. This would mean that the summing up of all things in Christ was at its beginning stage, obviously, because summing up really sounds like it's more like at the end. In fact, I think that's what it is. But John Gill, it could be. Gill could be right. Here's Gill. Uh, this is uh, also Jameson Fawcett and Brown's view also. Gill mentions this. I'm not sure he holds to this. I think he does, but Jameson Fawcett Brown definitely holds that the summing up of all things in the fullness of all times refers to the first advent. Here's a quotation, quote, The whole of the gospel times, plural, is meant with the benefits to the church dispensed in them severally and successively. Compare the ages to come, Ephesians 2, 7, the ends of the ages, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, the times, the seasons or fitly appointed times of the Gentiles, Luke 21, 24, the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, Acts 1, 7, the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the prophets since the world began, Acts 3, 20 and 21, the coming of Jesus at the first advent and the fullness of time was one of these times, the descent of the Holy Ghost when Pentecost was fully come, Acts 2, 1 was another in the fullness of time. The testimony given by the apostles to him in due time, or as another way to say it, in its own seasons in the Greek. That's another example of in due time. So Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown make a strong case that the fullness of times refers to when Jesus came. And I have no problems with that. If that's when the summing up of all things in Christ began at the first advent. I mean, after all, I'm an Orthodox preterist. So I don't have any problem with that. But it can also be the second advent, as Alfred Albert Barnes claims. Here's what he says, quote, When all things shall be gathered together in the Redeemer at the winding up of human affairs. That's when the fullness of times is. Well, if that's the case, then the administration of the gospel message is just the beginning of the summing up of all things at the end of time, laying the groundwork for the time when Christ is all in all. 
Well, I've let you decide on that whichever way, but the point is, is everything is going to be ruled by Christ in the end. That's the important thing. Things in the heaven and things on the earth, the summing up of all things in Christ. That phrase, summing up, NIV puts it this way, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Here's some options as to meaning. We've got an, we can have an objective reading of the verse. Summing up of all things means that Christ will lead all of creation objectively. Everything's going to be under him. That's the NIV Study Bible's take on it. Or the NIV Study Bible says there is another way you can read it. You can have a subjective reading of the verse. All things will make sense under Christ. Here's the quotation from the NIV Study Bible. Paul uses a significant term here that not only has the idea of leadership, but also was often used of adding up a column of figures. A contemporary way of putting it might be to say that in a world of confusion where things do not add up or make sense, we look forward to the time when everything will be brought into meaningful relationship under the headship of Christ. Well, that's nice, but I, I tend to favor the objective reading of the verse that Christ summing up everything is objectively speaking, everything's going to be under his rulership. And of course, then everything's going to make sense to us. The objective, in other words, includes the subjective. And so why not just say it's everything's going to be under Christ. Things in the heaven and things on earth are going to be under Christ. Now again, what does things in the heavens mean? Here's some options. Departed saints. They're in heaven, right? Things in heaven? Well, I don't know. Why would you call saints things? But Barnes thinks so. And then you've got to decide, well, if that if things in heaven means the saints, what do the things on earth be? Well, that could be the believers of all nations that are still alive. In other words, Christ is going to sum up his rule over the church, things in the heavens, the believers who've already died and gone to heaven, and he's going to also rule over the Christians that are still on the world. <clears throat> well, John Gill says it could be the things in heavens of the departed saints and the things on the earth of the dead physical bodies of all the departed saints. <laughs> ah, boy, that just takes a lot of imagination. I don't think it's true. Another option for the things in the heaven could be all the angels that are in heaven and the things on earth would be all the believers who are alive on the earth. Adam Clark has an idea that the things in heaven, in fact, he's not the only one. There's some others that have this view, too. Albert Barnes mentions that a lot of people have this view that things in heaven are the Jews. Things on earth means the Gentiles who are then converted to become members of the church. The Jews, all things in heaven are the Jews. I don't know where that view comes from. Things in heaven are the Jews. Maybe the believing Jews, that might make more sense. Things in heaven are the believing Jews, and then the things on the earth that Jesus is head over are the believing Gentiles who have become members of the church. Adam Clark says the things in heaven are all of man mankind. Well, that would mean that Christ would be head over everybody, including people in hell, if you ask me. I don't think that's a good idea. My view on this is that things in heaven and things on earth are just a way of saying everything. He's in charge of everything, natural as well as biological. He rules everything. Actually, it's something I don't lose a lot of sleep over exactly what Paul meant by that. But the point is, is that there's a future. Remember, one of the themes of Ephesians is the purpose, the end of things. We have a lot of kind of eschatology in this book about what happens in the end. Well, it's all going to be summed up in Christ. Now, exactly how that's going to be, I don't really know. But it's going to include everything, things in heaven, things on the earth. I'm surprised it didn't say, and things under the earth, things under the sea. That's A lot of times that's a Jewish way of saying that. All right, so let's go now to Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 12. It's right in the middle of a verse again. Thank you, versifiers of the English translations. So let me go back and pick up the end of verse 10. In him, 
verse 10. In him, verse 11. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That in him, in verse 10, remember we can translate that as in union with him, so it reads like this, in union with him also we have obtained an inheritance. John Gill describes that inheritance as, quote, incorruptible and eternal inheritance of glory and happiness in heaven. Now, Paul is using Old Testament language here because, remember, the Jews had an inheritance. They were promised an inheritance in the land, the famous Abrahamic blessings of land, offspring, and blessing. But the Jews had the land. We have an inheritance in him, in Christ. And Jesus also has an inheritance in us. That's a two-way metaphor, that inheritance metaphor. Just like crucified, we're, the world is crucified to us, and we're crucified to the world. The metaphor works both ways. Likewise, this inheritance metaphor works both ways. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, or the, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. His inheritance in the saints. In other words, the saints are an inheritance of God. They are something that God inherits. We are worth something to him. How about that? So we are God's inheritance, and God is our inheritance. We inherit him. We inherit heaven, and all the glory and all the wonderful things in heaven belong to us. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, verse the end of verse 11. Predestined according to his purpose. Remember the purpose. That's one of the things of Ephesians. What is his purpose? His purpose is to get us transformed to the image of Christ and to sum all things up under the rulership of Christ. James of Fawcett and Brown says, The church existed in the mind of God eternally before it existed in creation. He always had a purpose when he predestined us and when he created us. Here's some other scriptures showing his purpose. Ephesians 1.9 He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, in Christ. His kind intention which he purposed in him. Ephesians 3.11 This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this purpose was to have us predestined. We had been predestined according to his purpose, so it was his purpose to predestine us. Predestined us to what here? Well, here we were predestined to obtain an inheritance. Here we are predestined to be to the praise of his glory in verses 11 and 12. In verse 5, we were predestined to be adopted as sons. And here we are predestined to, inher to an inheritance. Now that's logical because in verse 5, if we're predestined to adoption as sons, well, what do sons do? They inherit from their father, especially if their father's rich. And by golly, God the Father is plenty rich. So we're sons, we're going to inherit from God the Father. Now, what are those riches? Are what? What does the predestination refer to? The inheritance we get. Well, it could be riches, material riches. It could be that's John Gill's idea. It could be that the Jews, old Israel, would be one with the Gentiles. It could be that Christians and New Israel would be saved. The Jewish, the Jews' election would then be a type of the Christians' election. The Jews elected as a nation. The Christians elected as a church. That's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea. I don't really know exactly what that predestination refers to, except it's an inheritance. Well. Why should I worry about what the inheritance is going to be? I know it's going to be great. I don't, I'm not going to worry about the details too much. Notice again in verse 11, God predestines us, the church, according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. He wants us to be predestined according to his purpose. He wants that according to his will. Will means want. In verse 5, God adopted us as sons according to the kind intention of his will. He wanted us to be sons in verse 5. Here in verse 11, he wants us to have an inheritance according 
he works all things after the counsel of his will. We've obtained an inheritance because we're predestined according to his purpose. God works all things after the counsel of his will. What he wants to. That's what God wants to. What God wants, he gets. He wants to give us an inheritance. He wants to give his sons an inheritance. What's the name of this little section of of scripture in this audio is inheritance as sons. Now let's look at verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That phrase, first to hope in Christ, is a little bit mysterious at first. I'm sure it's referring to the Jews, the Jewish believers who believed. To the end that we who were the first, Paul's Jewish, remember? We who were the first to hope, the first apostles were Jewish. And we and, and, and he says that we Jewish believers... The first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. There's that phrase again. God's predestination is for God's glory, not to make us happy, although we're going to get that. We're going to get happiness, but the purpose is to, so that God will be praised by all creation. People will say, well, look at the human race. Look how beautiful that was. Must be a beautiful God that made it. Must be a wonderful God that made it. Now, this idea that, that those who were the first to believe would give praise to God's glory those first people being the Jews who had become believers before many Gentiles had. The NIV Study Bible has that idea. Adam Clark, who is an Armenian, says that those who were the first to believe were predestined. The predestination was that God, Jews and Gentiles would be, would be one. Not that Jews would come to believe because that would violate their free will. You know how Armenians think. But it's rather that God predestined, predestinated that Jews and Gentiles would be one. I don't believe that. I think Clark is dead wrong on that. I think he's, that Paul is talking about the Jews were predestined to believe in order to give God glory so that people would praise God's glory. As I mentioned earlier, that phrase, the praise of, the glo- of his glory, what else gives, causes creation to praise God's glory? Verse 5 in Ephesians 1, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So the predestination of the church, the, pre- the predestination, the adoption of sons in the church gives praise to the glory of God's grace, to the glory of God. That's in verse 5. Verse 11, it's the fact that some Jews believers came to believe. That gives praise to the glory of God. And that idea of praise to the glory of God's grace is not finished because it's repeated again in verse 14 in which Paul says the redemption of God's own possession is to the praise of his glory. So let's summarize. There are three things that are to the praise of God's glory. The first thing is our adoption as sons. Verses 5 and 6, that is to the praise of God's glory. The second thing that is to the praise of God's glory is that is the Jews who first believed in Christ, in verse 12. And the third thing that is to the praise of God's glory, in verse 14, is our redemption from sin and death. We go now to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of your of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory now when he says you also he's you also in verse 13 in him you also after listening to the message of truth he's referring to the majority of the Ephesians who were gentiles as NIV study bible Gill Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown all say here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, quote, the priority of us Jews does not exclude you Gentiles from sharing in Christ. So that's why he says in him, you also, you get to share, you get the good news too. Not only those who believed at first, who were the praise of God's glory, to the glory of God's grace, but also you Gentiles also, da 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 verse 14, are to the praise of his glory. 
You Gentile also, you got sealed with the Holy Spirit. You were given a pledge of our inheritance. The, the Holy Spirit was given to you as a pledge of our inheritance. And you were God's own possession, and you were redeemed. And that's to the praise of his glory. So Paul has all this long sentence here, this long sentence here with a lot of content. But basically what he's saying is, not only were we Jews having gotten saved to the praise of his glory, but also Gentile believers are to the praise of God's glory. Again, that's... That goes to Paul's theme of summing up all things in Christ. The Jews and the Gentiles are one. Now, Paul says that you, meaning you Gentiles, were sealed in him. Of course, that means Jewish Christians were too, but he's referring to Gentiles here. You were sealed in him. What is a seal? It denotes legal ownership. When I used to practice law, we would type on the bottom of a will, a signature place, and at the end of the blank line, we put L period, S period. That stand, stood for locus signili, the place of the seal, because it used to be you put wax stamps there in ancient times and now even today if you really want to seal who owns that document you get a notary seal and you put that seal on there and you, you press it down and raise up the dots and make a perforated seal it shows ownership or shows authenticity of the document which is a very similar idea and the idea is that we are sealed with the holy spirit which means the holy spirit owns us not the devil folks not us ourselves, not we ourselves, not any other human being. The Holy Spirit owns us, not our boss, not our wretched husband, unsaved husband, if we're a Christian woman. Who owns us? The Holy Spirit owns us. Not our government, not the coronavirus. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, we can read that this way. We, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit who was promised. Where was the Holy Spirit promised? Well, let's look in John 16, 8. And when he is, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. When who has come? The Holy Spirit. He's talking about, look at the context. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter, or the Advocate, is come, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. So there, Jesus promises this Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit of promise. John 14, 16 through 17, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Comforter, of course, is the Holy Spirit, or advocate. Even the Spirit of truth, verse 17, John 14, Whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and shall be in you. So Jesus promised his disciples the Holy Spirit, and so that's why it's called the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, who is given as a pledge? Who is given as a pledge? The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, what is a pledge? A pledge is a down payment. The blessings of the Holy Spirit we receive now is just a taste of what we have coming. This idea of down payment is everywhere. It's in every culture. It's a business term. A down payment, I said, I want that. I, I, don't, I, I don't have enough to afford to get it right now, but I'm going to pay you the full price later on and we'll get the whole thing. Well, of course, God could afford to pay it right now, but he doesn't. He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit right now. You've got to live out your life on this earth. But by golly, at the end, you're going to get the whole enchilada of salvation in heaven, not just the Holy Spirit living in you now, dealing with your flesh and dealing with the persecutions and, and, and sadness of the world and the tribulations of the world. But by golly, you're going to get it all an eternal weight of glory when we receive our inheritance as sons in heaven. So the Holy Spirit is a pledge for what we're going to get for that full inheritance. Let's read Romans 8.23. And not only this, but we also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit. So there's a different metaphor. Instead of a pledge, the Holy Spirit being a pledge, the Holy Spirit is first fruit. And that comes from Old Testament 
Jewish rituals, they would give the first fruit of the flock. They would dedicate it to the temple to show that the whole, not excuse me, not the flock, but the, the harvest. The first fruit of the harvest was given to the priest to show that the whole harvest belonged to God, not just the first fruits. Likewise, that the Holy Spirit that's with us now, that is a symbol that the whole, that, that all of the future harvest of the Holy Spirit, all the rest of the wonderful blessings the Holy Spirit is going to bring is ours also. Not only do we have the first fruits, but that's just a symbol of what's coming later, the whole thing. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly, eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, as in Romans 8:23, a similar metaphor, first fruits instead of pledge. Now, in verse 14 of Ephesians 1, we see this. The Holy Spirit comes. He's a pledge of our inheritance with a view that means looking forward to in the future to the redemption of God's own possession. That means the complete purchase of us out of slavery. The down payment of our redemption price has already been paid. That would be the Holy Spirit. And then ultimately we're going to be completely redeemed. The redemption of our bodies, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, with the whole, we're going to completely be bought out of the slavery to how we have been living in this world. So when Paul in verse 14, Ephesians 1 says, with a view to the redemption of God's possession, he's talking about the ultimate completion, the consummation of the redemption. We've already been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but I mean, it's not finished yet. Our redemption is a process. It's not over yet. The final redemption at the end of time is is coming, as Adam Clark says. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, we're sealed, we promise we're going to be redeemed, we belong to God, but the whole process hadn't Hadn't happened yet. It's not happened yet. I had another thought that maybe the day of redemption could be the day we die and go to heaven to be with Jesus. Because basically then you're fully redeemed, but you don't have your resurrected body yet. So I, I, I tend to believe it's when everything will be summed up under Christ, when we're all raised from the dead, hell has been taken care of, death and Hades have been swallowed up, and the new creation lives forever in glory with God and Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. We have talked about some serious stuff in this section. Our election, our adoption as sons, our inheritance, the Holy Spirit sealing us for the day of redemption. Lots of theology, the praise of God's glory because of us. Redemption, redemption from our sins and our slavery to sin. In the end of chapter 1, from verses 15 all the way to 23 which we'll take up in our next audio. Paul gives praise and thanksgiving for the Ephesians, and he once more talks about the good things that they have as an inheritance. He continues on the same theme we've been talking about in this chapter. So we see in chapter 1, there's a lot of good stuff for the Christians. You ever get down by coronaviruses and things like that, you know, worldwide pandemics? Read Ephesians 1. you got a lot of good stuff waiting for you, even if you die. See you next time. Hope you enjoyed this audio.